Today, I kind of want to build off of last week's episode. So last week, we talked about the doctrine of inspiration, and that was kind of just the the 30,000-foot view, so to speak. There's so much more to it than what I covered, but what I hope what I hope that I accomplished with that last episode, what my goal was, was just to show you the divine human partnership in how the Bible was written. And if you have that in the back of your head, I think you'll be able to better grasp what I talk about uh, in today's topic. So if you haven't already listened to that last episode, or if you're not familiar with those kinds of uh, ideas, I just want to encourage you, maybe pause here, go listen to that last episode then come back to this one. As always, the goal today is to help you think well of Scripture. And part of that, within the mindset of looking at Scripture's divine human authorship, is observing how the Bible as a whole, the Christian Bible, both Testaments, how the Bible as a whole functions or behaves. Specifically, what I'm talking about is looking at how the New Testament writers handle and interpret the Old Testament scriptures. And actually, this is something we've already been kind of talking about. If you've been listening to the podcast from the beginning, you'll have sort of a sort of a wider foundation to take this in. But I don't mind beating a dead horse and saying the same things over and over because I believe these things are important. Yeah, they say repetition is the mother of all learning, right? I think that's how that saying goes. Uh, so I don't mind repeating myself. So um, remember, Christianity in its earliest days was an offshoot, or it was a sect of Judaism. You know, the apostles, they were all Jewish. There was no New Testament at the time. The gospel writers, Peter, Paul, whoever... You know, they didn't realize they were writing the New Testament. Okay, they were just writing. And their scripture, the authority that they appealed to in their preaching and in their writing, was the Hebrew Bible, what we as Christians call the Old Testament. So just as a jumping off point today, let me read from the book of Luke. And this is the Road to Emmaus passage, which I need to look it up actually real quick. <laughs> Um, okay, this takes place right after Jesus' resurrection. Let me pull it up here. Okay, this is Luke 24, starts at verse 13, going up through, goes up to about verse 27. I'm going to read out of the English Standard Version here. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. 
Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So, unfortunately, Luke doesn't record how Jesus interpreted the scriptures, so we can't observe the methods of interpretation that Jesus employed to explain himself. But what we do have, what we can observe, is how the New Testament writers interpret the scriptures in light of Jesus. And I've quoted stats on how many times the New Testament quotes and uses the old from the United Bible Society's Greek Testament before. And unfortunately, those specific numbers are escaping me at the moment. But, and actually, different sources will give different stats based on whatever criteria they use. You know, a lot of sources will put it right around 300 times, but there are some scriptures that are used multiple times in the New Testament, so the number is higher. But the math doesn't matter. The numbers don't matter. It's not a math class. The point is that the New Testament writers either directly quote or reference or allude to the New Testament all the time. They do it a lot. It seems like the New Testament writers can't even clear their throat without referencing the Old Testament. And why do they do this? Well, it's because for the gospel writers or for Paul or for whoever, they all see Jesus as the continuation and ultimately the fulfillment of the Abrahamic and Mosaic traditions that they are a part of. They see Jesus as the apex of Israel's story. The Jesus story for them is the apex of Israel's story. And so it's with that viewpoint that viewpoint is what leads the New Testament authors to handle the Old Testament scriptures the way that they do. The New Testament tends to handle the Old Testament scriptures in really, really interesting ways. And when I say interesting, I mean really, really interesting ways. Okay, like you'll be reading the New Testament and then you'll see an Old Testament citation. So you'll go look up the scripture in the Old Testament and you'll just be baffled and you'll think, okay, what in the world, where in the world are they making this connection from? And this is all going to speak to the questions we've already been asking and talking about in this podcast. You know, what is the Bible? How should we think about the Bible when we go to read it? How do the two Testaments relate to one another? How does our Christian Bible as a whole function? And these are good questions. Questions that, honestly, we won't come remotely close to answering today, but they are the questions that I believe should drive us in our study of the Word. And the goal today in this episode is hopefully to come close to just shedding a little bit of light on those questions. Okay, so let me give you some examples to illustrate what I'm talking about here. How the New Testament writers handle their scriptures. 
And you'll be familiar with this one if you've been listening to the podcast, but it's uh, Mark 1, 2 through 3. And actually, let me just read it here. Uh, Let me look it up. All right, Mark 1, 2 through 3. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So if you remember from that episode we did on uh, Christology in Mark uh, chapter 1, this quote is a conflation of three different verses. Isaiah 40 verse 3, Malachi 3 verse 1, and Exodus 23 20. Now, not only does Mark take the liberty, which it's really interesting that Mark feels like he can take this kind of liberty with the Old Testament scriptures, but not only does Mark take the liberty to combine three of them into one quote, he actually changes the wording from Malachi 3 verse 1. And let's just take a second to appreciate I don't need is audacity. Maybe that's the word, the audacity Mark has to change the wording of scripture to say something that it doesn't originally say. So in Malachi 3, 1, God says, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. When Mark quotes it, he changes it to say, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. So what's Mark doing? He's taking these scriptures and he's making God's actions, Yahweh, the God of Israel, he's making God's actions become Jesus's actions. Mark takes the Jesus story and he connects it with the story of Israel. Mark takes the person of Jesus and connects him to the God of Israel himself. Now let's look at another example here. And I really like this one. It's particularly illustrative, I think, of what we're talking about. This is in Matthew chapter two, and we're all familiar with this. It's it's the Christmas story. But uh, at this point in the narrative, King Herod hears about the birth of Christ from the wise men. And in the interest of self-preservation, he's about to kill all the male children two years old or younger. So he's a real villain, this guy. But let's pick up the story here in Matthew 2. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. Okay, so zeroing in on the last verse there, Matthew is quoting from the prophet Hosea. But when you go back and read Hosea 11.1, which is the verse in question here, you notice something very odd. Hosea 11.1 says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. So look at that. There's no prediction here. Hosea isn't predicting anything about the Messiah. In fact, Hosea is doing the opposite of predicting. Hosea is reflecting. 
he's looking backwards in time, not forward. He's looking back to the historical event of the Exodus. And if you go on to read that chapter, it's not a very positive chapter of Hosea. God's sort of lamenting over Israel. He says, you've been so disobedient and I should really just be done with you, but how can I do that? You're my child. You know, God just can't abandon Israel. But here's my point. No one is reading Hosea 11.1 and thinking, okay, now we wait for someone to re-enter Egypt. And when he comes out, we'll know that guy is the Messiah. I mean, one of the biggest problems here, just for starters, is that Hosea is referring to Israel collectively as a people, as a nation, not referring to one individual. There's a lot of strange things here, but I mean, this is completely not the way we do Bible interpretation in modern times. This is completely not the way I was taught Bible interpretation in school. Okay, the way I was taught Bible interpretation was we look to the context of what the original writer was saying, and that sort of becomes the northern star, right? The the guiding light for our understanding. But Matthew does something different. So what's going on here? How does Matthew see Jesus fulfilling the words of Hosea? And actually, a lot rides on that word fulfill. Uh, A lot of the way that we understand Bible prophecy hinges on the way we use that word fulfill. But I mean, okay, that's a discussion for another time. But well, unfortunately, there isn't a scholarly consensus when it comes to Matthew's hermeneutics here. Okay, but Matthew and Mark, for that matter, even as Mark conflates three scriptures into one quote, you know, they are doing what they're doing arbitrarily. There's a method to their madness, so to speak. Now, there will be people who disagree with me on this, which is fine. And this isn't the only hermeneutic option here. So if you're familiar with the concept of typology, that's a very viable understanding of how Matthew treats Hosea as well. And even if you want to go the typology route, I think that can overlap with what I'm going to talk about here. But the word that kind of comes to mind for me here is midrash. So what's what in the world is midrash? Let me read Richard Longnecker's definition of midrash here. Midrashic interpretation, in effect, ostensibly takes its point of departure from the biblical text itself, though psychologically it may have been motivated by other factors, and seeks to explicate the hidden meanings contained therein by means of agreed-upon hermeneutical rules in order to contemporize the revelation of God for the people of God. It may be briefly characterized by the maxim that has relevance to this, i.e. what is written in scripture has relevance to our present situation. Okay, Ian, what in the world did you just say? All right, Midrash is a painting in broad strokes here, but it is a Jewish method of interpreting their Old te- the, their scriptures. It's a Jewish method for interpreting their scriptures. It's a creative way of handling an old text in order for it to speak to contemporary to contemporary situations. Okay. Um. All right. Let's just back up here. 
So when we look at the story of Israel, we see these grand and wonderful promises God made to Abraham. And then we fast forward and see where Israel's story lands them. It lands them in exile. You know, God says to Abraham, I'm going to make you into this great nation. And through your descendants, all the nations of the world will be blessed, right? So this nation that I'm carving out that will be made up of your descendants, Abraham, this nation is going to be sort of like the funnel through which I deal with the rest of the world. Okay, so then this nation, they wind up in slavery for a while, but, you know, God miraculously brings them out of Egypt. You know, they receive the law, the Torah through Moses so they can live right. They get a tabernacle built so they can worship correctly. They go into the land and take possession of it, and they become a formidable military force under Joshua. You know, but Joshua dies, and it kind of becomes the wild, wild west in ancient Israel until they set up the monarchy. The monarchy, and even then, it gets off to a bit of a shaky start with King Saul, but eventually things get really good, and they get pretty good for a while with David and Solomon. Israel has its golden age under David and Solomon. But then after Solomon dies, it goes all downhill, and it goes downhill pretty fast, with only a couple of bright spots here and there. But Solomon's son, Rehoboam, is not a very good king. You know, he doesn't listen to wise counsel. He's, he's pretty much an idiot, Rehoboam. But, you know, under his uh, tenure, the kingdom fractures into two separate states. Okay, so we have 10 tribes in the north, and they kind of confusingly retain the name Israel. And the Davidic dynasty, um, you know, they they only get two tribes to the south, Benjamin and Judah, with Judah being the stronger tribe. And thus, you know, they lend their name to the southern kingdom. So we have Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And the line of David, they are, you know, that that kingship is over Judah. Eventually, the northern kingdom of Israel gets carried off by the Assyrians, not to be heard from again, really. There's a lot of debate as to what happened to them, but if you've ever heard of the lost tribes of Israel, there they are. Judah to the south, little Judah, they hold on for a while longer, but eventually they get taken over by the Babylonians. The Babylonians come in, they destroy Solomon's temple, all of that. This all happens around... 600 BCE, if I remember correctly, before Christ. But, all right, so they sack Jerusalem. They destroy the temple. The affluent or the elite citizens of Judah, I guess sort of the, the bourgeoisie, if you will, they get carried off into captivity into Babylon. And eventually the Babylonians, they get taken over by the Persians. And the Persians, they let the Jews go back to their land and rebuild their temple. And this is where Ezra and Nehemiah come in. And by the way, this is where we get all the terms we use today. Jewish, Judaism, you know, the region of Judea in the New Testament. It all comes from this southern nation of Judah. But even after going back into their land, it's not really their land, really. They're still under occupation. They're being ruled by the Persians, then the Greeks for a while, and eventually the Romans. So this isn't the way the story was supposed to go. Exile, 
and then pagan occupation. That was not the way the story of Israel was supposed to turn out. So think about this. When you're a Jew in Babylon, in captivity, and you look at your scriptures, well, the scriptures presume that you are in your own land. The scriptures presume that you have a monarchy and a priesthood and a temple to sacrifice at. I mean, the temple in Jerusalem and sacrificing at the temple, this was essential to the worship of Yahweh in ancient Israel. Those those are non-negotiables when it comes to worshiping God, yet they can't do them. It's been taken away from them. So if you're a Jew and you find yourself in this situation, you kind of, you have to think really hard about what it is to worship God. You have to think really hard about what it means to be Jewish. And you have to get creative with your old traditions in order to stay connected with them. And that's another paradoxical statement, but you have to get creative with your old traditions in order to maintain them. Let me give you an example here. Where in the Old Testament do you read about synagogues? Nowhere. Yet when you get to the Gospels, when you get to the book of Acts, you know they're all over the place and they're a pretty big deal for Jewish religion. Well, when the Babylonians destroyed the temple in Jerusalem and deported the Jews, the Jewish communities that were dispersed throughout the empire, they had to make a shift. Since they couldn't sacrifice at the temple in Jerusalem, in order to maintain their cultural and religious identities, the focus of the way they worshipped God had to shift. So what did they do? They would gather together to study and teach the Torah. Hence the rise of the synagogue. And this became a hugely important aspect of Jewish religion, even after the temple was rebuilt. Now, not only do we have the emergence of the synagogue in Jewish religion, but, but that gives birth to a new class of clergy as well. And we don't really have rabbis in the Old Testament. The religious system in the Old Testament is, you know, the prophet and the priest. But with the synagogue, we get the rabbi, who is this scholar teacher who doesn't necessarily uh, perform priestly duties, but they're there to interpret and explain the scriptures to the people. So that's one way the Jews had to get creative with their traditions in order to hold on to them. They had to contemporize their old traditions in order to stay connected with it in the light of changing circumstances. Now, once they're back in the land and rebuilt their walls and their temple and everything, a lot of things happen. The Persians, they give the Jews a certain level of autonomy, and so do the Greeks for a while. But at a certain point in time, the Greeks get hostile and the Jews revolt. And it's a crazy story. This is where you get uh, the holiday of Hanukkah with the Maccabees and all that. You know, eventually we start seeing this Hellenization of the Jewish community. A lot of influential factions start adopting a lifestyle that is more Greek than Jewish. And then, I mean, think about this. The priesthood gets corrupted during this time. The high priest becomes this political office that you could buy and sell. And this is where the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Qumran community come in. Okay. If you don't know about the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 
the 1940s. Qumran is the name of the town. And probably, I mean, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say the Dead Sea Scrolls could be, I mean, if not the most important, it's definitely one of the most important discoveries in the history of biblical studies. But that community in Qumran, they left Jerusalem and they went out into the desert because they were disgusted with the corruption of the priesthood and everything going on in Jerusalem. And this is like 100 to 200 years before Christ, right around there. But the Qumran community, they separate and go out to wait for the apocalypse, right? So this is a very apocalyptic sect of Judaism. They're kind of analogous to like the rapture-ready Christians who go you know, buy a ranch out in the middle of nowhere and wait for the second coming of Christ. So these guys see themselves as the true and faithful Israel. They even had a teacher called the teacher of righteousness. He was their leader. And people say that the teacher of righteousness kind of functions like Jesus does in the New Testament, at least in the way that he is the authoritative interpreter of the scriptures. Okay, so this uh, Dead Sea Scrolls community at Qumran, they're, they're the ones who are children of light, not children of darkness like everyone else. Okay, they're the righteous remnant. They're the pure ones. They're the elect. And that was their perspective. That was this perspective or that was the lens, so to speak, with which they interpreted their scriptures, the Hebrew Bible. Let me give you a, an example here. I'm going to read from Habakkuk 2. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. It seems slow. Wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Okay, so in the Dead Sea Scrolls, they found this commentary on Habakkuk. And in the commentary on Habakkuk, the one who reads the vision on the tablet and runs is the teacher of righteousness. And when it says the righteous shall live by faith, they take that to mean themselves. They're the righteous ones who properly observe the law and they'll deli- they'll be delivered because of their faith in the teacher of righteousness and in the teacher of righteousness's authority to interpret the scriptures. So that's what they're having faith in. That's the way that they're interpreting this passage in Habakkuk. Why am I telling you this? Because I want you to see the way that they take an old text and read it in a way that speaks to them in their contemporary situation. They're reading it in light of what they are experiencing. And Matthew does something similar when he handles the text from Hosea. Mark does something similar when he combines those three different scriptures into one statement. For them, the circumstances aren't the same. Jesus came, and now everything is radically different. And they have to look to their scriptures to explain the new development. They have to look to their scriptures to explain this story of Jesus and the movement that he started. And sometimes they have to employ a midrashic interpretation to make the contemporary connection. 
But here's the thing. Even though that sounds strange to modern ears, this handling of the Old Testament by the New Testament writers fits right into the world of antiquity. And with Matthew in particular, you remember how most people say Mark's audience was mostly Gentile? Well, Matthew's audience is Jewish. And Matthew is ultra-concerned with demonstrating how the continuation of Israel's story is embodied in Jesus. So when Matthew is writing and he's talking about the Holy Family escaping to Egypt, and he's looking at what the prophet is talking about in Hosea 11.1, he's thinking, okay, that event has relevance to this event. What happened to the nation of Israel speaks to what is happening to Jesus. What happened to Jesus is like what happened to Israel. Okay, Israel is God's son in the Old Testament. You know, Matthew and his community, they refer to Jesus as God's son. So even though Hosea 11.1's literal meaning is dealing with the historical exodus, well, now we have the ideal son of God coming out of Egypt. National Israel was the type. Jesus the Messiah is the antitype. Jesus is embodying the story of national Israel, and he will succeed where the nation failed. But here's the thing. The New Testament authors get there because they start with Jesus. They know Jesus. They've been with Jesus. They know Jesus is the Messiah, that he is God. I mean, if you have no awareness of Jesus and This is why a lot of Jews don't buy it, to be honest. But if you have no awareness of Jesus and you just read the Old Testament on its own, it's not like you're thinking, okay, well, now we wait for the guy who comes to die on the cross. Okay, it's not like you're reading it and you're thinking, okay, when when does Jesus come and die on the cross? I know this is mind boggling for Christians because it's a common evangelistic talking point to say, you know, Jesus is just so well articulated in the Old Testament. It's so obvious. Well, maybe, maybe not. But I mean, look at that, the road to Emmaus passage that we read at the beginning. Okay. I'm scrolling back up to it. Okay, at the beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus had to do it. It wasn't obvious. It wasn't obvious until he he did it. Okay, these things, it's like, okay, there's this show called The Masked Singer, and it's a wild show. It's actually really entertaining. But they have these like really famous people all dressed up in costumes and masks and you don't know who they are and they do these singing performances and they have these clue packages and these judges, they try to guess who the mask singer is. And most of the time, the clue packages make no sense until the person behind the mask is revealed. And it's kind of like that when it comes to Jesus and the being revealed in the Old Testament. You know, this language goes back to Augustine, you know, Jesus is in the Old Testament concealed and he's in the New Testament revealed. Okay. But I mean, 
Jesus has to be the starting point. Like with that Mass Singer show, the identity of the Mass Singer is the starting point. And when you know their identity, that whole, all the clues make sense. Well, when Jesus is the starting point, and he is the starting point for Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, all of them, you know, with that starting point, everything, all the dots connect. Okay. So maybe it's obvious to us, but for the Jews, you know, the cross meant that Jesus wasn't the Messiah. He died. He was executed. He lost. But we know, and the disciples knew, and Paul knew, and hundreds and hundreds of witnesses whom Jesus appeared to, they all knew that he rose from the dead. And for them, that confirmed it. He was the Messiah. They know Jesus is the Messiah. And they know that by faith. That's why they interpret the scriptures the way they do. That's why they handle it the way they do. Because the Messiah has come. The Messiah has changed the whole paradigm. The circumstances are not the same as they used to be. The Messiah came, and now they have to look at the Old Testament in light of that. It's an already held position, or it's a prior conviction, in other words. And sometimes it takes a little midrashic teasing of the text to get it there. And that's okay. Remember, the Bible is the product of a divine human partnership. And even though the method of interpretation is strange to modern ears, like I said, it fits in pretty well into the world of antiquity. This is something I always say, but the Bible was written in a time and place, not our own. So we have to consider that in order to think well about it. So these Jewish interpretive practices, they're, they're baked in to the Bible. They're baked into the Bible, but they're also blended with a commitment to the person of Jesus Christ. And that is what leads to some of the unique interpretations of the Old Testament that we get in the New. All right. Well, that was a lot. Okay, let me leave you with a few points because I think I'm going a little long here. I try to keep these episodes around 30 minutes just to respect your time as a listener. But next week, we'll look at several more examples of how the New Testament writers handle the New Testament, or I'm sorry, we'll look at more examples of how the New Testament writers handle the Old Testament with this sort of midrashic way of interpreting it. But let me leave you with a few points before we go. Um, First is this, Jesus, the disciples, Paul, the early church, They weren't trying to create a new religion. By the second century, Christianity was pretty much a Gentile religion, but the early church wasn't trying to start a new thing. And you can see this. You can see this when God sends Peter to Cornelius and Acts. You can see this when the Jerusalem council um, wrestles with the report from Barnabas and Paul, that the Gentiles are coming to faith in Jesus and they're receiving the Holy Spirit just like the Jewish believers are. Remember, Jesus is the apex of Israel's story. He's the point. He's the fulfillment of it. They aren't trying to create new traditions, so to speak, but rather for them, the old traditions have expanded. 
the circumstances have changed. And now the question is, how do we include the Gentiles in this tradition? Which leads me to a second point, and I'll just keep this one brief, and we'll expand on it in the next episode. But when we think about the New Testament, we shouldn't think about it as a new thing. Maybe that doesn't make sense. Maybe that's a little confusing. Put it this way, we shouldn't think of it as a separate thing. We shouldn't think of it as a Gentile thing. I'll say it that way. We shouldn't think of the New Testament as a Gentile thing. These scriptures were written by Jews, except for maybe Luke and Acts. But regardless, like I said in the beginning of the episode, these writers can't make a move. They can't clear their throat without looking to the Old Testament. And I think it might serve our understanding of the New Testament and of the Bible as a whole, the Christian Bible, both Testaments. But I think it might serve our understanding better to think about the New Testament writers as Jewish believers in Jesus who are thinking out loud and doing theology about who Jesus is, what Israel's story means in light of Jesus, and how that story now includes the rest of the world. And a third final quick point, just to reiterate something I said a minute ago, this is all inspired writing, okay? So when the New Testament writers are doing this theology, when they're thinking out loud about who Jesus is and what he means for the story of Israel and how he embodies the story of Israel and how that expands to the Gentiles, when they're doing that theology, that whole process is being guided by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so nothing I've talked about today makes the New Testament any less inspired. The Holy Spirit was still guiding that process. All right, well, that's enough for now. We'll expand on this a little more on the next episode. So make sure you're subscribed to the podcast. We're on iTunes, Spotify, and the Anchor app. Uh, Once again, as we're signing off here, I really appreciate you listening Uh, So thank you. I hope this episode has provoked you to think a little bit. That's the whole goal here on the Bible School podcast, to help you think well of Scripture. All right, we'll catch you next time.